Hello, I'm Dr. Vance Gann. Welcome to our Let People Prosper episode. We've had a lot of good discussions about fiscal policy and the effects that that has in the overall economy, how to constrain budgets, whether they be at the state level, local level, or the federal level, with different types of key budget budget me- metrics and rules that are put in place on fiscal policy. I'm expanding that now to include more of economic policy in general. And for our first discussion today, I'm, I'm really excited to bring in two of my friends, two folks who are really doing a great job in, the, in, their, in their work um, out there in the academic community, but also at the public at large. And so I think you'll really enjoy the discussion that we're going to have today, um, deep, diving deeper, you know, taking a deeper dive into what's happening in the economy. When you think about inflation, which is the number one thing on everybody's mind when you look at different polls, um, when you think about the amount of money that's in national debt. Now, the national debt, according to a Pew Research poll, recently found out is in the top one of the top five things on people's minds. Imagine that debt starting to come back to the surface as we reach thirty trillion dollars in national debt. So there's a lot of good stuff to discuss today. Uh, maybe dive into some of the labor market, but I really want to bring in um, the two that I'm going to talk to today. Let me give you a quick introduction for both of them. Uh, both are happy warriors. You, you'll know as we like to do here on the Life People Prosper Show. The first is Dr. Chuck Beecham. Dr. Chuck Beecham is an assistant professor of finance in the School of Business over at a, uh, and he's at Mississippi, he got his PhD from Mississippi State University. Um, Dr. Beecham joined MC's faculty in 2016 and currently teaches business finance, financial modeling, and short-term financial management. His area of expertise is business demographics. Um, he attends St. Francis of Assisi, I think it's Assisi, uh, Catholic Church in Madison. Um, he's an overall around great person, and we've worked on a lot of issues together in the past. I think he'll bring some really good insights of what's going on in the economy from a financial perspective. My other guest today is Dr. Alex Salter. Um, Dr. Alexander William Salter, as he has on his website here, uh, is his Comparative Economics Research Fellow at the Free Market Institute and Georgia Georgie G. Snyder, Associate Professor of Economics in the Jerry S. Rawls College of Business Administration at Texas Tech University. Uh, That's a mouthful, Alex. (laughs) He earned his BA in economics from Occidental College and his MA and PhD in economics from George Mason University. Um, He's covered a number of different areas. Some of the things that you may have heard him and or read from him in the Wall Street Journal uh, talks a lot about monetary rules, um, the, re- the relationship of Christianity and economics, uh, whether Jesus was a socialist. There's just a lot of good things that he's written, not only Wall Street Journal, but many outlets that are out there um, with many scholarly publications as well. 70 of those. He has more than 100 articles for the general public. Um, so an all around prestigious writer um, over, over uh, in, in many cases. He also has a key book that I would like to highlight, uh, which I read recently with Dr. Peter Bedke and Dr. Daniel Smith, uh, Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. I, I really recommend that you that you read it. Um, again, Money and the Rule of Law. It's, it talks a lot about the background of what's going on there and then talking about the importance of rules versus discretion. And, you know, they don't really pick a specific rule, but they talk about different types of rules. And so I think these are give us a lot of good insights of what we can discuss today, especially with 
so much going on in the economy um, and the stock market, you know, continues to at this day, you know, we're currently on May 18th. Stock market's taking a pretty big hit today and has been. Oil prices still around $100 a barrel. Gas prices are reaching, you know, record, at least in nominal sense, record highs. We've seen a lot of this inflationary or higher prices leading to inflationary sort of effects. Um, so there's just so much that's going on. So I thought these two would be great people to bring in and have a good conversation. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you Pleasure for joining me. Yeah, thanks for joining me today, guys. And uh, Chuck, I first want to turn it over to you. Take a little bit of time about what you're looking at. What are some of the key insights in the financial or sector or the overall economy that's really drawing your attention that we should have other people take take note of? So I think there's a lot. First, there's a lot going on. Um, I know we're scheduled for about an hour here. I don't know if we could cover it all in an hour, <laughs> uh, but we'll try. I think the I think the best way to to describe the economy right now is precarious at best. Within the last 48 hours, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of information, a lot of a lot of communication coming out of the Fed. Finally, in the last 24, 48 hours, Jay Powell finally admitted that there might need to be some pain to get inflation under control. Now, I would have liked to have heard that six or eight months ago, but here we are. Having said that, we've already had a fair amount of pain, both in capital markets and in consumer markets. We know inflation is the overriding uh, concern with everyone in the economy right now. I'll cover that in a minute. But that's been the pain on the consumer side, on the business side, but also on the capital side. And it's been, really been a reverse situation. If you think about capital markets, there's been inflation in capital markets probably for about 12 years. And we're seeing that reverse itself. And if you want to call it disinflation, we can call it that. But we're seeing some of that, uh, some of that, the overvalued nature of capital markets start being uh, pulled out. Having said that, the economy does have some strengths, and I think that's what's propping us up right now. Number one, both personal and business balance sheets are pretty strong. They're not overly strong, but they're you know relatively strong. However, I want to caveat that with something, that they are laden with debt. There's a ton of debt, both on personal and on uh, business balance sheets. And I'm going to come back to the debt theme in just a minute. Bank balance sheets also, remember in the business world and in the economic world, we tend to separate corporate balance sheets and bank balance sheets. It's very important to do. Bank balance sheets are, and I know Alex is probably going to talk about this too, are fairly strong right now as well. And that gives all three areas, personal, business, and the banks, some room to absorb some of this inflation, which they've already done, I still think they have some room to absorb some more. However, that can't go on forever, and there's going to be some weakening. We're already seeing some weakening in the retail sector. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. In addition to strong balance sheets, we've seen up until the last 48 hours, relatively strong earnings coming out of the business sector, out of the public you know, and capital markets. In the last 48 hours, we've seen both Walmart and Target come out with concerning retail earnings. That's not that's not unexpected given the level of inflation. And finally, another strength, I think, and it hasn't really been talked about much, um, is it looks to me like the shipping cycle has peaked and we're on the way down in, in, um, in the cost of shipping. It's not coming down quickly, but it is starting to come down. However, we could see that turn turn back the other way if energy uh, continues to do what it's done on its upward course. What this story ultimately is, is we have a tight economy, 
that is wound around a massive amount of amount of debt. And I was glad when you in, introed us today that you kind of hit that debt theme, because I think that's really what it's all about, is we've just got this huge amount of debt. And it's not just in the United States, it's worldwide. Um, it's not just in the private sector, it's in the public sector as well. Um, and you have to remember that debt compounds our weaknesses. Anytime you have an excess amount of debt on any balance sheet, it compounds any weakness or any trouble that might come your way. Case in point, the Fed has only raised interest rates, 70, or, you know, the Fed funds rate 75 basis points. But in that same amount of time that they raised 75 basis points, a leading venture capital index in the United States has dropped 52% of its value. That shows you how sensitive we are to debt, okay, and to the effects of debt. Now let's jump over to the weaknesses that I see. Absolutely inflation. You know, England came out this morning at 9%, um, 9% inflation, 6% core. That's right around where we are. Germany is even a little higher. So this is a global issue. Uh, yesterday it was announced that gasoline is now $4 a gallon in all 50 states. That's never happened before. So we've have, we absolutely have more inflationary pressure there. Mortgage rates have doubled in the last, you know, in the last 60 days. And Building materials are still inflated, even though they've come down a little bit, they are still way over their 10-year average. So we've got just inflationary pressures hitting us from every direction. My second point, and I have this in a separate point, was, was my second weakness, is energy and food. And the issue there is inflation. But there's such a huge issue, I thought it was important to, to um, list them separately. Um, if you look at uh, West Texas Intermediate, it's up 45% year over year. This is That's a big issue, and the, the stocks of that are not increasing at all. In fact, um, it's the major issue I'm watching there, and I think it's something to keep our eye on over the next 30 to 60 days, is specifically diesel. Yes, gasoline's hitting everyone, but diesel hits you know, hits the trucking sector, which can put more inflationary pressure up there. Here's a little stat on that. And I thought this was very concerning when I saw it. The East Coast currently has about 20 million barrels of diesel. Now that might sound like a lot. That's three days of demand. Okay, so they're incredibly tight on the East Coast, and you can expect that to spread across the country. So we see energy prices ticking up. The situation in Russia, China, and now India with food is incredibly concerning. Remember, um, we have Russia that supplies a and the Ukraine that supplies a tremendous amount of wheat to the world. That's essentially been shut off by the uh, by the war over there. We were leaning on the idea that India would fill some of that void, but over the weekend, India announced no more exports for the for right now of wheat. That's going to put more pressure on food prices. So we've got energy and food hitting us from every direction. Then you get into the China situation where they're basically just shutting down again on this goal of zero COVID. I, I mean, I'm not a public health expert, but that just doesn't seem to be plausible. If it is more power to them, but how much damage are we going to do? Are they going to do and going to do to us um, and prices in general by shutting down? Where is all this landing on consumers? In the first quarter, it was projected or forecast that we would have 25 billion in new consumer credit. The number in actually came in at 52.4 billion. 
Okay. There were over a hundred million new credit card accounts opened in the first quarter of this year alone. So we've so basically consumers are financing this inflationary situation with credit. That can't go on forever. We saw in the and I've already mentioned retail earnings came out yesterday, today, both Walmart and um, and Target both were very negative on their earnings and basically cited inflation as the issue twofold. Number one, it's starting to cut in to their call. You know, they can't pass on their cost quick enough, which is a huge issue for them. It's going to because that's going to erode their profit margins. But more importantly, people are shifting their consumer preferences. They're move, you know, they're getting off of durable, uh, off of non-durable goods and they're moving over and, and having to spend more on food. Finally, the level of corporate distressed debt grew $27 billion in the first quarter. So it goes back to the issue of debt yet again. And when you combine that with inflation, we've got a major problem. The, and of course, we know how to fix this inflationary problem or start to fix it with higher rates. And that's just going to compound the uh, the debt situation even more. I'm, I'm getting close to the end. Just bear with me. Um, capital good, markets, uh, bonds, you know, are yielding higher and prices are going lower. The thing, the reason I bring that up, it's important to remember in capital markets, bonds are boss. We all love to watch cap, you know, we all love to watch equities. Uh, that's where people make the major, you know, the most money, so to speak, or generate the highest returns. But bonds really drive everything with interest rates. And right now, they're they're pushing rates up quicker than the Fed is, and of course, their prices are coming down. The other thing that's that's a little odd this time around that's not we've not seen in prior recessions, and I'm not saying we're in a recession yet, but in in economic periods of economic weakness, generally investors will go into safety investments, U.S. Treasuries, precious metals, and the bond market. They're not doing that this time. Okay, um, and what that signals is that liquidity is basically leaving capital markets. Now, where is it going? Well, it's got to be going into consumer markets to a certain extent, which puts even more pressure on prices. Uh, the next thing I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get into, and I'm just going to briefly mention this because I think we'll we'll get into it in more depth during the during the period. Is I think the Fed's somewhat weak in what they can do. And and bear with me on this, you guys might disagree with this. Currently, if you take the total amount of debt in the United States, it's sitting at about 100, I mean, 280% of GDP. And that's that's public debt and private debt. If you if you graph that number over time against the Fed funds rate, you can see that the peak Fed funds rate has has dramatically decreased over time as the uh, total debt to GDP ratio has increased. Basically, it just says that the the more debt the economy takes on, the less tolerance it has for interest rates, and that's pretty self-explanatory. So the question now, I think, is what does Powell and company do? Do they stop at neutral, which seems to most people seem to agree neutral is neutral Fed funds is somewhere around 225, you know, 2.25 to th to two and a half, or do they go above it? And that brings me to my last point is communication out of the Fed. You know, we know the Fed is all on the same page as to getting inflation under control. But I don't and I've been studying this stuff for 20 years. I don't ever remember the Fed having as many people talking at the same time as they do now. You know, yesterday, this was almost unbelievable. Yesterday, including Jay Powell, Fed governors gave six speeches on inflation yesterday. And the big one that really caught my attention was Evans last night. I forget where he was, but Evans is out of the Richmond Fed. 
he basically said, look, two and a half percent is not enough. We're going to have to go higher. No one's talking about higher rates on the capital market side of things yet. And you see what the result was today. You know, um, stock markets getting killed today and yeah. and um, and so are bond markets. So I think, you know, I think the Fed needs to rein everyone in, get on the same page and start communicating. Here's where we are. Here's where we need to be. That's exactly what Volcker did back in the late 70s, early 80s. And he did so both with words and action, both of which we haven't gotten out of the Fed. Well, you've given us a lot to, to think about there, Chuck, and um, some key elements that I want to come back to here in a little bit. So thank you for, for that. Alex, what about you? Where, where do you see things now? Uh, and what have you really been watching most? That's a tough act to follow. I'm not yeah. sure I can hit. I'm not sure I can hit any new categories. I'll just talk a little bit about inflation since I'm a money and macro guy. Wrote my dissertation on money and macro. My book, which you uh, th thank you by the way for the plug earlier, the book that I wrote with uh, professors Becky and Smith is also about monetary economics and the Fed. It's a little bit embarrassing as a monetary economist that I didn't see inflation coming. Uh, I, on many, along with many other people, was on uh, Team Transitory as recently as last fall. Of course, the data releases that we've got since then have shown us to be in a different world. It does seem that inflation is here, it's with us, and there does seem to be a major demand side component associated with price increases. And the key giveaway there is just surging total spending in the economy, what we economists call nominal GDP, uh, gross domestic product evaluated at current market prices. That's up. And we can debate the importance of the supply side considerations too, right? We remember that the most recent quarterly release showed that GDP was actually down a little bit, 1.4%, I believe. So that suggests right. at the same time as prices are going up, if output's actually down a little bit, that suggests that we have lots of demand and constrained supply at the same time. And that's not the first time that we've experienced that. I've been doing a lot of Fed watching not so much in terms of parsing their speeches, but trying to figure out what exactly they're trying to commit and explain to the public. And unfortunately, my best opinion on this is they're trying really hard, once again, not to be understood. They're trying very hard on the one hand to calm the public, but also they're just trying to not be, uh, to have markets not be able to guess at what they're doing because it's actually to their benefit to be able to surprise markets a little bit. The way that I look at monetary policy is a little bit weird. I don't think that the Fed funds rate is very important. I don't think that exchange rates are very important. I don't think that equities prices are very important. Those are all relative prices, right? The price of some good or service or asset relative to all other prices in the economy. And so from a monetary policy perspective, that's not what we should be paying attention to. What we should be paying attention to is the overall level of demand in the economy, total purchasing power and GDP, nominal gross domestic product. And really the best figure that we have about that that's going to give us some predictability as to what's going on there is the overall size of the Fed's balance sheets. They still have nine trillion on their books. They can talk all they want about raising interest rates. They can talk all they want about the strong dollar, maybe hurting imports or whatever they want to distract us with next until they actually start shrinking that balance sheet by hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars. They're not serious about bringing inflation down. That's it. That's the ball game. The dollar, that's determined in global markets, the price of dollars compared to other currencies. The Fed funds rate is a market price. It's determined in global capital markets. Right? Some of the interest rates that the Fed uses as their instruments, like the interest that they pay banks on reserve accounts held at the Fed, that's not a market rate. That's what we call an administered rate, which means that the Federal Reserve controls that directly. Now, even then, there are sort of market pressures on it, what it can get away with paying, what it can not get away with paying. 
But, uh, and this is really something that I blame financial journalists for more than anybody else. Monetary policy really isn't about interest rates. It's about money. Interest rates are priced in terms of money, but so are apples and pizza. And yet it would be really weird if Jerome Powell started talking about apples and pizza in his next, you know, in his next speech or his next press release. So I'm paying pretty close attention to the Fed's balance sheet. I want to see that sucker come down pretty significantly before I'll buy that the Fed is committed to inflation fighting. And really what distresses me the most is that ever since their major policy shift back in August of 2020, when they embraced what's called flexible average inflation targeting, where they're trying to hit not 2% inflation every year, but at 2% on average over a course of years, on paper that has some really nice properties, but it only works well if you assume that central bankers are super competent and omnibenevolent. And I would question both of those assumptions. I don't think that they're terribly good at their job, not because they're particularly bad at it, but because by the nature of the job, what it's become, there's really no way to be good at it. And in terms of the benevolence assumption, I really think that there are political realities that central bankers are pressured to adhere to and face that we pretend don't exist, right? We talk about Fed independence. The Fed is independent from the Treasury. It can do what it wants. It doesn't have to answer to the president, to Congress. Yeah, okay, again, on paper, that's how it works. But in practice, elected officials can and do smack around central bankers a whole lot behind closed doors, and that's not exactly fun. And so they want to avoid that to the extent that they can. The more political pressure formally or informally there is on the Fed, the less likely it is that whatever objective the Fed is trying to accomplish is actually going to be commensurate with the public interest. That's just the way that this is going to work. We can't be sure that what's in the best interest of markets and society as a whole is going to be the goal that the central bank pursues. So again, watch the balance sheet, see if they're serious about shrinking it. If you see several quarters of that thing going down by tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, then maybe we can be some optimistic about relief in the pricing pressures. But until that happens, I, uh, I reserve the right to be skeptical. Rightfully so. Rightfully so, Alex. And I mean, you and I were talking about this year ago, and, and there did just seem to be more transitory elements um, that hopefully were going to be cleared within the, within the marketplace. And okay, time, I think time out. Vance is being too much of a gentleman right now. What he's not saying to the world is yeah. I, you know, Mr. Sophisticated Macroeconomist was explaining to Vance why this was all supply side stuff. <laughs> and Vance was saying back to me, are you sure this looks like a standard demand side inflationary event? <laughs> Guess who was right? The other guys. So he's too much of a gentleman to say that, but I, in the interest of full disclosure and credibility, I need to say Vance <laughs> called that one. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and, and I like the frankness as, as you know. And so whenever we were looking back at that time, there, there was a lot of talk about how this time is different, right? And the, the, the amount of money supply that was put into the economy, I mean, I mean, look in 2020, y'all go back to this COVID hit, everything happened. I was still at the white house. Then we were seeing all these, um, this, what was it over $2 trillion from the CARES Act that was going to be pumped into the economy and all these quote unquote stimulus checks that were being sent out. You know, I was like, pause, let's not do that. Let, let's, let's focus on what's really going to matter. Um, because then we knew that the Fed was probably going to just print a lot of this, which was going to increase the balance sheet and contribute to inflationary pressures over time. But I think there was so much of a focus on how do we keep people at home? How, how do we stop COVID? And, and Chuck, uh, this, I'm going to go over to you because, you know, China is trying to do this now, uh, which which I think is a, is a problem. And it's going to influence a lot of the um, supply channels that are happening across the globe. I know Alex has written about this in The Wall Street Journal. I believe it was The Wall Street Journal recently. 
one of the outlets where you ride, Alex. <laughs> last the fall. Place. Yeah, last fall. Last fall. Yeah. But, but he was like, hey, maybe we need to be shifting away from China. And I think that, that that's a good idea, right? Because we need to have a, a number of places. You, you diversify your portfolio in the sense of where you're getting receiving so much of your imports. And a lot of them for too long have been from China. And, and we've got the baby formula shortage, which isn't necessarily China. That's some other things, government sort of problems. But what I'm seeing so much here, and I've been trying to talk a lot about, are government failures government failure, not market failure, because us is more of the free market side of things. We are getting so much pushback saying we need more government. And we're hearing this from the Biden administration now and, and things of that nature. What can what would you say to some of those folks that see some of these issues that are going on and say, look, this is really the direction where we need to go, or at least say this hasn't worked? <laughs> well, the first thing I, first thing I want to add to Alex is just to make his Please. point a little more. The Fed was buying mortgage-backed securities two weeks ago still, you know, on its balance sheet. So that just makes his point even more. So they, I agree that, you know, until the, until they start shrinking that balance sheet, we're, 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 still, we're in for a long run of inflation. Um, yeah, government failure is everywhere, and it's been everywhere now for two full years, or I guess over two years. I mean, they've, they started failing. China was the first government to fail with COVID. I mean, they basically lied to the world and then the entire world panics. You're right. They tried to keep everybody at home. How do we keep them living at home? Well, we give them money. And I think really, if you look at the, you know, the Fed really started pumping in 2008 when they started, you know, when they started doing all of this. So that's that's really a four. Well, about a, at, in the 2020, that's a 12 year window that they pumped and really What's to me, what saved them is it wasn't getting put out in fis in fiscal stimulus. You know, that really saved the Fed for a long time. And then 20 rolls around and COVID and they start pushing and, and, and it Chuck, out in Chuck, fiscal Chuck, stimulus. Real quick is what also was helping them was the interest on excess reserves. Yes, that helped a right? tremendous amount. And they should have stopped pumping probably around 11 or 12. I mean, the whole thing has been ridiculous. But I mean, hindsight, as we say, is 2020. But, you know, now they've got to figure out a way to unwind all of this stuff. You know, and it's not going to be easy. That's my thing on the Fed communication. I think he needs to. And you and I actually talked about this, Vance, a few weeks ago. I said he could become the next Paul Volcker. I mean, he really has the opportunity. But does he have... Does he, he have the, uh, pal. Yeah. the willpower to do it? He could come out now and go to Congress and say, you've got to quit spending. You know, you've got to quit the excess spending. We're going to tighten the monetary side of things by shrinking our balance sheet. And to the American people, it's going to be painful. That's exactly what Volcker did in 79 when they started that. And he not only communicated it, he did it. You know, if you go back and you look at Volcker's interest rates, and of course he had a lot more room to move around than we do right now, because as I, you know, as I cited the tremendous amount of debt, but the debt then was under 100% of GDP. Um, he had more room to move, but he increased 100 basis points in one day. So he basically said, I'm serious and 
this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do it as long as we have to. And to show that he was even more serious, you know, they tapped the brakes on raise on monetary policy, on tightening monetary policy at one point in 1980, and then turned around because inflation took back off again, turned around and did it again. So he showed everyone, look, we're serious about this. We know inflation is the is the problem right now. And he was dealing basically with the same timeline as um, as Powell is, and it was about 10 years prior to Volcker of runaway inflation. You know, so he's got the same window. He's got a huge opportunity. I just don't know that he is. I, I'm with Alex. I think they're just trying to talk their way out of this. I've told a couple of people, I think they're hoping the bond market does the dirty work for them. You know, I think they're hoping that the that the bond side of things is going to keep increasing yield and really bring everything crashing down. But yeah. I don't know that the bond market will do that. Yeah, and it's interesting too. You know, um, Paul Volcker focused a lot on the money supply. Yeah. Right. And yeah, Milton Friedman, one of my favorite economists, uh, said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And so when you focus on the money supply, and then of course reducing the Fed's balance sheet. Helped to drive up the target interest rates, uh, where wasn't it the prime rate went up to about 22%? Yeah. I, I believe. Uh, mortgage rates were up 20%. I mean, it's, it's unfathomable to where they're at now. I got a mortgage rate last year of 3%. I think the rates are closer to 5% now of how quickly they're going up. But it's just, it's, 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 un, it's unheard of today what was happening during that time of Volcker and everything else. And, you know, Alex, I, I think whenever I, been reading a lot of your research over time, and we've chatted about this a lot. There's more and more evidence that we need rules-based policies. <laughs> this discretion just does not work, and it leads to the economic volatility that, okay, the stock market goes volatile and things of that nature, but this is affecting people's lives and their livelihoods. And so I, I wonder what your thinking has been, because I think you're on the cutting edge of where we need to be. Where, where are you at on some of this now? I'm definitely a rules guy. There's no question about that. Here's the thing. One of the most pernicious myths in all of economics, especially in policymaking circles, is this idea of a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. Let me be right, frank. The Phillips it, curve. The Phillips it, curve. Right. The Phillips curve. Right. It yeah. does not exist. You can have full employment, like a 3% unemployment rate with zero inflation. You can have full employment with 10% inflation or anywhere in between. And so a lot of this, a lot of this conversation that we're having where we're worried that if the Fed actually puts on the brakes, that'll hurt the economy. Yes, it will, but not because of the Phillips curve, not because of some naive trade-off between inflation and unemployment. The reason right. that would happen is precisely because the Fed has gone out of its way not to be predictable. If the Fed clearly commits to a policy rule and communicates to markets what that rule will be, markets can bake that information into their contracts. Oh, the stance of monetary policy is going to look like this going forward. Well, I know how to write my long-term contracts now. I know what yield I'm looking for on 10, 15, 20, 30-year securities. I know what my wage bill has to be for me to stay competitive, et cetera, et cetera. The whole reason you have that pain associated with short-term monetary tightening is because the Fed is upsetting expectations because they're still in a tinkering mindset. They're still in a micromanaging mindset. We got to fine tune here. We got to grease the wheels there. Really, we shouldn't even be playing that game. The goal of monetary policy is to create a stable foundation for markets. 
Markets allocate resources. Central bankers don't or shouldn't, right? The whole problem is that they've right. been doing that way more lately, and, and we yep. can talk about that later on. So as long as the foundation is strong, you can build a you can build a pretty good house, right, on that foundation. If the foundation is not strong, not even a fortress is going to stand. The whole thing is going to come tumbling down. And I know that when you confront political realities, this gets a little more complicated. Just because demand is, in fact, in the driver's seat right now doesn't mean that supply is not a problem. In 2020, there were supply problems, right? It's just with hindsight, we know that demand problems were worse. Right now, there are supply problems, right? In 2020, it was lingering bottlenecks from the pandemic. Today, it's Russia, Ukraine, and China. All that stuff going on that Chuck did a great job of explaining. All that is real, right? But that doesn't change the fact that the Fed's job is aggregate demand management. That's really their only justification for existing. And again, it just shows you how easy it is to slip into the wrong paradigm. We shouldn't even be using the word management. We should be talking much more about a mesh, a credible communication between policymakers and the market so we everyone doesn't feel like they just got the rug yanked out from under them. If we can keep things stable and predictable, we can improve on even the most far-sighted technocrat because this thing is just too complicated to fine-tune. The best you can do is rules. Amen. I agree. Um, on the other side of things, you know, it's difficult to talk about monetary policy without talking about fiscal policy. Yes. Um, you know, someone who talks what I think is another good mind on this is John Cochran. He talks a lot about the fiscal theory of the price level and everything. And I tend to follow a lot along with what he's saying um, quite closely. And I think whenever you whenever you're considering what government should be doing, and I think we would like them to be as limited as possible uh, overall, you know, is. We should be funding government's programs that are effective and that work and everything else and that are preserving liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Besides that, I would get rid of a lot of the size of government, <laughs> you know, and um, but when, when you're thinking about that, we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. I mean, what I've heard this year is that revenue is going to be about 20% of GDP, which we've only hit two other times in our history. We're, we're going to have record amount of revenue that's coming in from the corporate side, from income side and all those things. So a lot of revenue, but we're still going to have a trillion dollar plus deficit, you know, because spending is just out of whack. And, you know, you have the quote unquote entitlement, Social Security, Medicare that drive some of that. But all the other parts are also growing at a pretty rapid rate. And so whenever I start to look at this and think about this from a public choice sort of argument, a new institutional sort of argument, um, the institutions of our economy and our fiscal policy, just like our monetary policy, are, are broken. And, and they're cracking at the seams because People are demanding too much from our government, right? I think that the government has become the first resort when it should have been the last resort. Civil society should be doing a lot more of these things, churches, synagogues, you know, all those sort of things, communities coming back together. And instead, we're all separating and doing all these things that we shouldn't do. And, and that's one of the reasons why I've been such a you know, fan of fiscal policy connected with monetary policy. And, and, and Alex, you and I have been writing about this um, um, in a couple of articles saying, look, these really should be tied together because if you don't get your fiscal house in order, it's hard to get your monetary house in order because how do you pay for those deficits? You raise taxes. Well, that's politically very difficult to do, right? Uh, you can issue new debt and then that makes that can make interest rates and things of that nature go up and goes to the debt problems that Chuck mentioned earlier. So it makes it a little bit easier for the Fed to buy it, buy the debt, print the money, and have the hidden tax of inflation that all of us hits at the same time. And That's so we the key, really need right? to have they're really, 
Yeah. They're really a single institution, fiscal and monetary yeah. processes when you get down to it, right? We, we pretend that these things are separate and independent, but at a deep level, when they impinge on each other, that's usually when things go bad. Yes. The people who correctly called inflation today and also correctly called the lack of inflation in 2008, those guys realize this. They understand that all the new money creation went through the banking system in 2008, so that combined with interest on excess reserves, that massive increase in the monetary base was not going to be inflationary. This time, again, in hindsight, we bypassed the banking system. Direct yep. checks plus monetization yep. of the debt. That's yep. the key. That's why interest on reserves didn't matter anymore. And so when you view fiscal and monetary policies as a single self-supporting institution, those feedback effects between monetary mischief and fiscal follies are really going to spell pain for ordinary American families and businesses unless we get them under control at the same time. Yep. If you reform only one, it's going to be only a matter of time before the other side that you didn't fix breaks the side that you thought you fixed. Exactly. exactly. There's only a permanent fix if you get both. This is why it was one of the great tragedies that we never actually got a balanced budget amendment back in the 80s, yes. early, early 90s. Yes. Right. We would really be in much better shape today in terms of fiscal and monetary room to maneuver, at least during uh, emergency scenarios, yeah. if we had tightened our belt when it was comparatively easy to do so. Now it's hard. Mm -hmm. But guess what? It's as easy now as it's ever going to be again, because it's just going to keep on getting harder and harder and harder. That's right. That's exactly So if you keep on kicking the can down the road, well, guess what? There's always a reason not to do the same responsible thing. Yep. Be people that are going to suck it up and do it. Yep. Chuck, what, what do you add to all that? Well, you know, I think on the fiscal side, we the policymakers on the fiscal side tend to focus 100% on spending. They never talk about not not just financing it, but ge generating the revenue for it. And that and basically, I I not only fault them, I fault the Fed on this as well, because the Fed has enabled this behavior now for a very long time. Basically, holding it, you know, keep pushing money into the system. And what's that do to interest rates? It drives it down. That makes it very easy to overspend over on the fiscal side. I've said, you know, I, I, I use this line on Twitter a lot. I mean, basically, at some point, the uh, the fiscal policymakers, and this is both Democrat and Republican, they abdicated part of their fiscal duties over to the Fed. I mean, they just basically gave it over there to them. And the Fed is not designed for fiscal policy. It's designed, as Alex has said, for monetary policy. And yeah, the two at some point do become linked, but there is that difference between them and they need to operate based on their goals and their, you know, their duties. And I think the Fed veered away from its duties, you know, um, a long time ago, because partially because they've had to fix the fiscal side of things as well. And it, that just kind of mirrors what Alex just said. And it's just a huge, huge issue. And that's what goes back to me saying that Powell could be a huge hero right here if he would take the line with Congress and say, look, enough is enough. We're getting our house in order. You've got to get yours in order. As we raise rates, you're going to do it one way or the other. You know, yeah. and, and the bond was market it, will do it for them. Yeah. Was it Time Magazine? I think it was back in the fall that had a cover with Powell on it with the caption, the world's best bureaucrat. Yeah. So that looks a little <laughs> yeah. bit ironic now. He, You're right. You're absolutely right, Chuck. He has the opportunity to be the world's best bureaucrat if he does the responsible thing now. Yet I can't help but notice you get accolades from all the right people if you go pedal to the metal when things don't look so good Yes. and then never normalize. Yep. So, yes. Yep. And we're in an election year, right? Absolutely. <laughs>
When's it not an election year? My God. Oh, yeah, I know. That's exactly right. So you see all these things that are going on. And, you know, in the last few minutes that we have here, I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important for our system of federalism for the states to really show the way. Now, I know we're talking about fiscal policy, monetary policy, and so that's a little bit different uh, from the federal level. And most of the states, 49 of the 50 states have a balanced budget amendment. Thank God. Uh, so that helps to keep them in line to some extent. They still issue a lot of debt in the pension side. They need some reforms on. But you also have a lot of good spending limits. Like Texas has a stronger state spending limit as of last year, uh, covers more of the budget, all of general revenue based on population growth and inflation, a three-fifths vote to that from both chambers to exceed that limit. Um, I think you have a lot of other states that are doing something very similar that are showing the way for what Congress should be doing. You know, um, I put out what's called the Responsible American Budget, which basically puts this spending limit at the federal level, which they could self-impose without even a balanced budget constitutional amendment or passing a law. It's just a lot more difficult given the incentives <laughs> and, and the rent-seeking that goes on at the same time. But I, but I do think that, you know, you had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of, of, of 2017. We, we saw some of the, the benefits of the deregulation that took Pat that took place at the federal level, you know, given that there's probably going to be a change in the dynamics of the House and the Senate makeup this next year, the, the problem I see, just to get be frank about it, is I don't see a pro-growth message that's being put forward by, by the Republicans. You know, if, if you're really going to think you're going to take over this next year, let's show a pro-growth effort of reining in spending and others. You have Larry Kudlow and some others that are starting to talk more about this, but, but a lot of the other talking heads are not. Um, how can we start to influence some of them or, or maybe just pointing back to the states and saying this works? Um, well, I don't know. What are some of your thoughts there? Or, or is it we should we should just kind of give up on some of that? <laughs> I'll let Chuck take that one first. OK. All uh, right. Well, first, I, to be honest, I don't think a lot of them understand pro-growth economics. Yeah. I really don't. I don't think, you know, if you look if you look at look at, at what they do and listen to what they say, a lot of them are. A lot on the Republican side believe that government's the answer to just a lighter government than the Democrats want. And that's a big, big issue. Um, if you if you listen to them, um, they talk a lot. They talk a lot about regulations, too. It's just different regulations than the Democrats want. Um, to me, you've got to dial back the regulations. You have to dial back the um, the tax burden. Um, and if you do that, it would allow businesses to flourish and to, I mean, if you look at Texas, Texas has just had such a great record of that. Um, if you look at another Republican state like the one I'm sitting in right now, Mississippi, Mississippi has a terrible uh, record of letting businesses flourish. We have some of the some of the worst regulations on businesses in the country. We just tried to do tax reform here, state level tax reform, and it largely failed. Yeah, we shaved off one percent off mm -hmm. of the uh, state income tax, but we needed to take it to zero. Mm -hmm. We didn't do it, you know, and the and it was Republicans that killed it. It wasn't yeah. the Democratic side that killed it. So you know, there's they just have this belief. Or they're, they're um, almost a religion, so to speak, amongst this group in Washington, that they believe Washington can determine everything and do it better than, than the individuals can do it and that businesses can do it. And to me, that's just such a huge detriment to uh, uh, capitalistic or I think it was Alex that wrote this. We need to start talking about more about free markets than capitalism. You know, free, free enterprise. Yeah, free enterprise. Said. That's what it was. I like free it. Enterprise. And if you let free enterprise take 
take root. It will flourish. It has yeah. everywhere on the planet it's ever been allowed to, you know, it's ever been allowed to try it. Yeah. So that might be a good way for us to go out, Alex. What, what would you say about some of that terminology or, or any other insights that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, that's a great place to go next. I really do think that one of the tragedies of the Reagan revolution is that the conservative movement really never did go all in on making war on the administrative state. Mm. There was too much making peace with the legacy of the New Deal. Yeah. yeah. And I think that 20 plus years later to 40 years later, depending on what you're starting the dating of that, we're really those chickens are coming home to roost because we've gotten so used to a lot of these legacy institutions that really shouldn't be there and have no <laughs> constitutional business even existing. Yeah. We're just taking it as part of the basic fabric of government. And I think at the margin, a lot more matters on the regulatory side than the tax side. Don't get me wrong. I think that the economic effects of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was was pretty beneficial. Um, as a deficit hawk, I'm not 100% sold on on all of its effects. But at the same well, time, I think that a reasonable case can be made for it. We, we should but have also, I, just real quick, we should have also reined in spending. If we were going to do yes. that part, we should have reined in spending at the same time. Yes. Right. For every, you know, for every buck of taxes, go down spending a buck 25, something like that. That really should yeah. have, that really should be something that's part of the conversation. I agree. But we really need to get the regulatory state off the back of American families and businesses. Yep. I really think that if we can do that, if we can actually do the hard work of making the necessary procedural reforms, that's going to, well, in the short run, it's going to check a lot of the boxes of political logic, right? Because uh, in the short run, you have to do what's good politics. There's just no getting around that. And I think that there are aspects of that that work. But in the long run, you are going to see some growth boosting opportunities. And really, growth is a supply side consideration, right? The wealth and poverty of nations is not determined by aggregate demand stabilization. It's determined by how much stuff you have. And you can't consume stuff unless you produce stuff. Yep. So you can, you know, you can slag supply side economics all you want. It's nothing other than the fundamental recognition that nations are wealthy if there are goods and services there to be consumed in the first place. We got to get more of that, which means that we actually do have to restore constitutional limited government in Washington. No compromises with the no deal, with the new deal. No, you know, playing footsie with the great society. We tried it. It doesn't work. Awesome. Well, I, I could talk to you, you guys all day. And um, if, if it's OK, I'd love to have you all back. Uh, sure. let, let's have another conversation sometime soon. Um, I think there's a lot for us to ponder Hopefully the viewers will um, begin to think about some of these things and we can continue to build on them as we move forward. We're thinking about, you know, rules over discretion and how monetary policy and fiscal policy matter. Debt matters as we went through this and all this goes into inflation and everything else that we see along in the economy. So it's really important for us to take a deep dive when we can. And these are two great folks that can do that. Um, you can find them online and everything else. They talk quite a bit and are in different articles. So um, keep up the good work, guys. Thank you for always being a happy warrior. And thank you for joining me on the Let Fuel Prosper show. Thank you, Vance. Thank all you. Right, thank you.